I'm fascinated with how humans process the world around them, how we absorb what we see, hear, and taste. Then how do we translate that experience into tools for survival for as long as possible? I love trying to take an experience or an emotion and use the language of cinema to recreate those visceral feelings for a room full of strangers. It's my intent to make the viewer question who they are and what their motives might be if they were living out what is being played on screen. You're listening to a special edition, Friday edition of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you guys? What's new? Um, I wanted to come on today and uh, sort of share with you an exercise that I've been doing lately. Um, well, it's a part of a bigger exercise that we've been doing lately, both me and Gina, uh, during our quarantine imprisonment <laughs> for over a year. Um, and lately, uh, well, the longer story of it is this. I don't know. I'm sure you guys have gone through the same thing, right? Being stuck in quarantine, there are a hundred million reasons why you shouldn't get anything done, right? So maybe you guys are on unemployment. Maybe you guys are in between jobs right now. And what you should be doing is, you know, writing, testing your skills, learning new things, pushing yourself. So that way, when we get out of quarantine, not only do you have new skills that are marketable, but there's a part of you that just wants that energy. And it's so easy to get distracted. I've talked about it on the show about being distracted with video games. I got really lost in cyberpunk and and, uh, you know, being distracted by TV series and TV shows and you wake up. And it seems like the entire day just disappears on you. You spend a couple hours online, you're on Instagram, right? And then everything sort of disappears. And in the beginning, it's fine, you know? I needed a break. So did Gina. And uh, we both sort of got lost in taking a break, I think, for a little while. But then you just hit a point where weeks go by and you just, you're looking around going, what, what have we done? Why do I feel so unsatisfied? Do you guys have that mode? There are times where I'll be at the couch, or I'll be sitting at the couch at the end of the night, and we've just watched a bunch of trash on TV, and I'm just restless. I'm feeling restless, and I'm feeling unsatisfied, and I'm feeling upset, and I just don't know why. And uh, it took a long time. I really thought about that. And came up with a new process that both Gene and I have been doing over the past couple weeks, and sometimes we're on it, sometimes we're not on it, but most of the time we're trying to get it so that it becomes the ritual for us which is we wake up same time every morning, which helps with the insomnia if you wake up at the same time every morning. And then uh, we sit down, play a vinyl, we throw a vinyl on the record player, and for an hour, for the, for the length of that vinyl, we just flip through books of inspiration, right? We write in journals. We just try to look at things that we wouldn't normally look at on our average day which means that we're off our phones, we're off of Instagram, and we're flipping through. We've got a bunch of really great books. I've got this really interesting book on plants um, and like the science behind plants and with this beautiful macro photography of them. And it's this whole other world that I never really thought about. Um, and then I've got books on, on uh, animals and stuff because I've been creating monster designs for this new project. Um, and it's really great. We spend like about an hour, we go through this stuff we, we just sort of fill our brains with different imagery, different ideas, things that aren't being fed to us, things that aren't coming to us on an algorithm, things that aren't on our news feeds, just something different. And it's been very rewarding. It really has. And this morning, I uh, sat down and I was like, you know, it's been a long time since I really sort of defined and thought about why the hell do I make movies? It's, and it, it's it's such a simple question. And I know why I like to make films. I just haven't actually sat down and wrote it out, right? And really sort of thought about it. And so that's what I did today. And I thought that it was interesting enough that I would read it to you guys. So bear with me. This is something that I just wrote up about an hour ago during our inspiration hour. And uh, I'm going to try to read it off the page here. And you know me, I'm an illiterate idiot. So <laughs> strap in. <laughs> um, all right. So 
I love trying to take an experience and emotion and use the language of cinema to recreate those visceral feelings for a room full of strangers. It's always my intent to make the viewer question who they are and what their motives might be if they were living out what is happening on the screen. I really do want to take an experience that I've had or that I've had through somebody else, through someone's story to me and how I felt, whether I was there, whether I was in the car crash or how I felt listening to the car crash and how the person felt to me delivering that stuff. And so I'm consistently trying to gather these emotional moments in my life. And while I'm in them, I'm trying to look around and understand why I'm feeling a certain way. Is it the way it sounds? Is it the way it looks? Is it the way it smells? Like, what is this thing that I'm feeling? Um, and I, you call me strange, call me a weirdo, but it's the truth. Gina gives me shit about it all the time because I'll watch something and I think it's incredibly disturbing and I'll watch it multiple times. Not because I'm obsessed with the act of what's happening on screen, but I'm obsessed with why I'm feeling this way. And so I'm usually examining my heart rhythms, my heart rates, what it is about this thing that fascinates me. What is it about this thing that really scares me? Um, and I think it's a healthy thing to do, not just if you're a storyteller, but if you start to understand why you react to certain things certain ways. So let's continue here. What are people actually thinking? Now, how much would you pay to have a superpower where you can read other people's minds? It sounds like something that would make the world a bit easier to handle, right? Or would it? Would we actually want to hear from each person around us? Would we actually want to hear what they're thinking unfiltered? Would you want to hear the unfiltered thoughts of your partner as you walk down the street with them, right? And the stuff that you did hear, does that align with what they say? Does that align with what they say about you? Would it surprise you to hear how they actually feel about you or how they actually feel about this situation? I've always thought about that. It's really interesting. And I think it's my obsession with this inner voice. I think it's my obsession with how we process things on the inside. Now, there are two sides to every person. There's the side that we will outwardly project. And then there's that inner version side, that voice inside of us who makes us who we really are. I'm fascinated by that inner voice. What does it sound like? What skills has it developed? And what process has it come up with taking into consideration all the sights and sounds and the decisions that are bombarding us at every second? This is something that I realized when I had my head injury. One of the side effects of my head injury, I don't know if it was because of the concussions, but I lost the ability to filter out for a short period of time, I lost the ability to filter out the sounds around me. And it was insane. This is a task that your brain does on autopilot that we never really think about. Being in a, like a, a really busy restaurant, I remember feeling like I had some weird curse, like a weird superpower where I could hear the cooks in the kitchen talking, I could hear the dishes clanking, I could hear everything, and I couldn't find a way to focus specifically on the person in front of me. So how does your body do that? And we can look into the science of that, but how does your body decide what it's filtering out? How does your body decide what is important and what isn't important? And how does your body decide how you're going to process what you're hearing emotionally? That stuff's really fascinating to me. Then thinking about this, your inner voice, right? Your decision-making process is influenced by how you come up, right? How you're raised, where you come from, your experiences that you had. That one time that you trusted somebody and it went wrong. I'm not going to do that again. Or that other time where you were surprised by the way something tasted and you're just trying to recreate that thing again. That stuff is really interesting to me. Ultimately, what motivates your inner voice? Is it curiosity? Is it anger? Is it sadness? Actors in our business call this motivation for their characters. But I like to think of it in its truest form. It's the truest form of who we are and where we come from. Is what we project outwardly self-conflicting with our inner voice? 
Are we proud of our inner thoughts or are we ashamed of them? That answer for me changes second to second of the thousands of hours that most of us try to survive on this planet. If you think about that, every second of the day you're making a decision on anything, right? The temperature of the room, how that person looked at you, where that sound's coming from, what that sound means. That stuff is fucking fascinating to me, right? And that being said, understanding how intense and how complicated my inner thoughts are, and my inner voice is, I'm absolutely curious about every human I ever meet. Who are they really? Who does she think people want? Who does she want people to think she is? How does she dress in public? How does he speak around his peers? And what is he like alone? Audiences love to dissect a character from the moment they step on screen. They expect filmmakers to peel back the layers and slowly reveal the character's inner motivation. Now, is this because we want to identify with him? Is this because we want to feel safe around them? So often in the entertainment that we watch right now, characters are written and their inner motivations are written as the most basic and distilled tropes. Sex, money, survival, right? But in reality, it's all of these things mixed up in an ever-changing pool of the chemicals that our brain swims in. Then the question is, can a person really change? Right? Can a person compete with this inner voice, with this system that we've designed since we were a child? And what would that process of change actually look like? Because we expect that in our narratives, right? Characters are supposed to have an arc. They're supposed to discover something. It's supposed to change the way they do things, right? But how does that look? Textured, how does that look? How do you face your inner thoughts? How do you question them? How do you recognize when they're manipulating you? And how do you force them to adjust and change? These are questions that I have, that have been consistently haunting me as a human being. And these are, these are questions that fascinate me. And these are things that if we sat down and had a beer, we'd probably, probably start talking about this stuff because I'm curious and I've asked a lot of people that I hang out with how they feel about this stuff because we all go through it. All of us do. This is the one singular defining thing that we all have, this inner voice, which I'm fascinated by. And in my fascination, I did a lot of research looking for a scientific explanation of our habits, what influences our inner thoughts. Uh, and I found a lot of really interesting theories on neural pathways. Let me read some of this stuff to you. Hold up. Because this stuff's really cool. Neural pathways comprised of neurons and connected by dendrites, maybe that's how I say that, are created in the brain based upon our habits and behaviors. The number of dendrites increases with the frequency a behavior is performed. Now, the person writing this likes to picture these neural pathways as deep grooves or roads in our brain. Our brain cells communicate with each other via a process called uh, neuronal firing. Now, psychologist Dean Ware, PhD, explains that when brain cells communicate frequently, the connection between them strengthens and the messages that travel that same pathway in the brain over and over again to transmit are faster and faster. With enough repetition, these behaviors become automatic. Reading, driving, riding a bike are, set, are examples of complicated behaviors that we all do automatically because of narrow pathways that we have formed. That makes sense, right? So you're just sort of setting up these grooves in your brain where it's like, okay, uh, I, I want to fry an egg. I know exactly how to fry an egg. I could do it without thinking. I could do it without thinking really, diff uh, really hard on it because that pathway has been established. In terms of repetition, it is estimated that it takes 10,000 repetitions to master a skill. Hmm, sounds like something I've been saying on the show. And develop the associated neuron pathways. As clinicians, we can encourage and support repetition when our patients are working to achieve their health goals, which is interesting. 
Uh, what that means is that a character attempting to change their habits, um, that, that attempt can be a monumental effort. And imagine the stress involved with trying to literally change the pathways in your brain. Like how many times do you have to tell yourself to do something? How many times do you have to run through that repetition? Now, we're not just talking about riding a bike. We're not just talking about frying an egg, right? We're talking about how you perceive people, right? This is that battle with, with systemic racism. This is that battle with abuse. And this is that battle with alcoholism. This is that battle with all of these epic human issues that people are tackling consistently. How do you change those pathways? And what does that struggle look like? Because it takes a lot of fucking work. Think about it. Think about it for, for working out, right? The idea of getting yourself out of your bed and climbing on the floor and doing sit-ups or doing crunches or going to the fucking gym, driving to the gym every day and getting on the weight machines and then setting that rhythm into place. Like I said earlier, Gina and I are trying to do the inspirational thing every morning so that we can set that rhythm. We can set those neural pathways for it. We've been doing an okay job with it. I've kind of slacked a little bit this week because there are a hundred different reasons why I should fall back to my old routines. Getting certain emails, dealing with work too early, a hundred different reasons. And it's frustrating. Have you ever noticed how frustrating it is when you're trying to set up a new system for yourself? And you just can't do it. And it just seems like you fall back into a groove again. I wonder why they call it falling back into a groove. Hmm. Where most of us can't hide it. It is our subconscious rhythms, our body language, the way we impulsively react. That's interesting. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to hide the internal struggle that we're going through. We're trying to project our best self. This is what we're taught, right? Be polite, project your best self, like dress accordingly. Wear what you want people to judge you by when you walk into a room. We have a hundred different ways of setting up a defense mechanism between a stranger and our true inner thoughts. Whether you're a man or woman, we all have it. Ladies have it with makeup. Ladies have it with the clothes they wear. Ladies have it with uh, the outfits and how the outfits manipulate their bodies. And men have the same thing. Men have it in posturing, false confidence, right? The clothes we wear, the way we say things, the way we speak. And think about language. Think about how we actually create our accents, how we create our rhythms. And that's based upon the people that we're around. That's based upon the people that we admire, even if it only subconsciously, right? And we want to project that image. It's fascinating. I mean, right now, when you listen to my voice, my voice is being put through a microphone that's being put through a filter process that gives it that bass, that gives it that resonance, that I'm manipulating all of that. Now, what does my inner voice sound like? Fascinated by this stuff. So like I was saying, our body language and the way we impulsively react, our eyes, these are things that give away what we're thinking, oftentimes, unless you're a trained sociopath, <laughs> you know? Like it's really hard to teach your body to do those rhythms that come naturally to us. Like, which direction do you look with your eyes when you're trying to remember something? Do you look at a person directly when you're lying or do you look away, right? And with body language, when someone gives you some really abrupt news, how does that change your posture? If you're ashamed of something, how does that change your posture? If you're angry, how does that change your posture? These are all things that we talk really hard with, with actors about, right? How does this information, how does this new information, how does listening to this person affect you physically, 
emotionally. I love that stuff. And the eyes to me have always been an obsession, right? Our eyes are meters for that emotion, gauges for how we're responding to our inner voice. There's all sorts of fascinating science behind which directions our eyes look when we're trying to remember something, trying to connect, attempting to hide our emotions, like I said before, for when we lie. That's why I've always been obsessed with faces. From my early years as a photographer, it was always about faces and eyes. Did the eyes match the outward display from that person? That's why I also love the power of a reaction shot. What does the person listening to our character really think? What do their eyes say? What does their body language say? It's that study of body language that had me looking at medium shots or two shots in a very different light. How can I give clues to how a character is actually thinking by watching the way they walk, sit, stand, and react? Now, does that align with what they're saying? See what I'm doing here? This is the stuff that really inspires my blocking. This is the stuff that really inspires what I want out of my talent, my actors. The more you study these traits, the more you realize how inherently selfish we all are. Now, I don't mean selfish necessarily as a negative term. Uh, it is, and it's not, it shouldn't always have that sinister connotation. For example, when you get hungry, we selfishly need to eat or we'll die, right? If I don't make money, I'll lose my home. If I don't phrase this right, then I'll lose the love of my life. It's, it's really exhausting, right? This selfishness. And most of us are completely caught up in it. So much so that we don't always see how our actions, how our selfish actions are affecting the world around us. This brings me to my fascination with blocking on a larger scale, like extreme wide shots. And this is why for quite some time I was studying the master Kurosawa. Now he did this really well. I'm obsessed with a room full of extras all reacting to the emotion of one person. And I've talked about it on the show in the past. It's those scenes in the samurai films where there's a room full of like 30 or 40 men just sort of sitting around their one master. And that master's response affects the entire room. And he designs it in such an interesting, exaggerated way. And that's what I really like about Kurosawa's characters is he assigns an emotion to their physicality so that when you see them as a silhouette, you see them walking down the street, you don't even hear what they're saying, you assume that that character is like Joe Old, and you assume that that character is angry because of his body language. And then you get to see that body language interact with everybody else as that character walks through those sequences. I really find that stuff fascinating. You know? I love being able to, to design a body language that defines a character's inner voice and have you understand that at one glance. This is my fascination with cinema. Using techniques to stimulate what we feel in real life, but then challenging the viewer to see it from a different angle, to see how that reaction affects a room the people we live with, and the world around us. Now, it's no surprise that as a director, I'm obsessed with horror. That's where I started. I'm going to play there for quite some time. I like it. I get to take these emotions that we're talking about, these inner feelings, and I get to ramp them up to 100%. I get to present you, the audience, with extreme situations but then go macro. I love to go macro within them and see how it affects the insides of our hero to see how it affects the mental capacity of them around that person. I got to watch them. We get to watch them attempt to figure out how to design a new narrow pathway. I don't know. I bring these things up because like I said, I, I wanted to sort of examine my obsessions with these things. And if you've seen 12KM and you're listening to this, 
I think you might understand it a bit more. That film, at its core, is about a man who loses his father, right? And it's about a man who lost his father and a father that really didn't respect him. And the fact that he had to clean up what his father was doing, the fact that he had to be the one to go fix what his father was doing aggravated him and it upset him. And so when that character walks into that space, he's outwardly angry. And you can see how it is affecting those around him. And what is interesting about the creature in that movie, and what I love about the idea behind the creature at 12KM, is that there is this alien creature on a micro level, on a microscopic level, that has the ability, once it's breathed in, to go in and change your inner voice. It gets to go in there and actually speak for you, influence you. That's terrifying to me. The fact that any time that I go in my head and I ask myself, should I do this? Am I hungry? Is this person a friend? Is this person against me? That that voice, that sounds like my voice, the voice that I've had for as early as I can remember, isn't mine. That's where 12KM comes from. And like I said before, a lot of that comes from the results of my head injury and not being able to control a lot of that stuff. And the pure terror that comes with that. It's so cool. It's so cool. So ripe for fucking horror. And we've only touched upon it with the short. There's so much more I want to do with the feature version of that. But that's what that movie's about. And if you watch Edward, who is the lead, played by Ara Woolen, if you watch him descend in that movie, literally descend into the bowels of that shaft and into the bowels of that drilling facility, completely influenced by the creature, completely motivated by this creature. And he goes down there with the attempt to kill it all, to shut it all down. It's interesting. It's a fascinating study in the inner voice, which I really dig. And as we talk about some of these new projects that are coming out and some of the new stuff that we're working on, that obsession is still with each of these projects. And it isn't necessarily just inner voice specific. I mean, this new thing that we're working on that I'm not really allowed to talk about really focuses on addiction and the results of a bad choice, the results of making a bad call. And then how do you get over that? How do you process that bad call? And how deep do you get into this selfish obsession with that bad call? And then how is it affecting your family? And how is it affecting the people around you? And that to me just really stems with how intensely concerned we all are about our problems these days. And we're so micro with it. And then we forget to look around and say like, hey, my opinion is doing this to the room. Is that a good thing? Right? You know, my mood is affecting those around me. Is that a good thing? It's so weird, right? It's so relevant. I feel like it's a very relevant thing. And these are the things that I've been obsessed with, with filmmaking. And it's, it's been so subconscious for me. I guess it's a pathway that's been set for years that I, I really just didn't define it. And so when I sat down today to write this stuff up, I was like, ah, oh, of course, that's what, that's what this thing is. And I thought you guys might find that fascinating, just the process of figuring this thing out. Um, and I love this stuff, you know? So next time, if you get a chance to watch one of my movies or if you want to see 12 cam, write to me. Like I said, the old rule is write to me and uh, send me your three favorite horror movies. And if we agree, I'll send you the short. <laughs> Most of the time I agree <laughs> because you guys all have very similar taste. Um, but I'll send it to you and see if you can spot these things. And if those of you who have a link, you can watch it again. And see if you spot those little obsessions that I have. And then um, 
when you see, if you've seen the Who's There short, you'll see a lot of the same sort of internal struggle, which is interesting. I just find that that stuff is really interesting to me. And I think that's what's starting to define my work, is that obsession that I have with that. And so if you watch these films, if you see any of my stuff, uh, see if you can spot the reason why I wanted to recreate those moments. See if you can spot why I fell in love with the character. Why I fell in love with the character enough to spend years of my life introducing them to you. I mean, of course, I don't want you to think about all this the first time you watch it. First time, just get lost in it. Enjoy the thing. But then as we all do, whether we love or hate these movies, we always go back and watch them again. So in the second time, examine why you felt that way. Why did you feel fear at that moment? Why did you feel anger at that moment? What is it about the scene that got you? Was it the music? Was it the lighting? Was it the staging? Was it the performance? Then, if you will, think about the cast of humans that surrounded me to make that moment. What skill, what experience, what did they bring to that moment? This is what my favorite part of making movies is. It starts with an idea, usually with myself or my writer. And then it becomes this human experience, casting people and their inner thoughts and their inner voices to contribute, to mold, to guide the moment, to bringing a fuller, more intense, more realistic scene. I mean, these people are doing everything they can, every skill that they have to take a scene and make it either surprisingly realistic, hyper-real, insanely imaginative, just to get you into that room, into that space. And I'm attempting to guide them. I'm attempting to take all of their suggestions and all their choices and put it through my filter, right? Put it through my tone. This comes down to tone that I have had so many people ask me, write to me and ask me like, how do you design tone? How do you develop tone? This is all part of it. I love this stuff. It's like, think of it as like a room full of prep cooks or line cooks and waitresses, all taking that chef's idea, building it and delivering that taste, that smell out to the waiting hungry customer. So when they put that food in their mouth, they're experiencing not only the idea that the chef has, but bits and pieces from each person that loved that initial idea and was like, hey, if we just inject it with a little bit of my experience, that'll make it even cooler. I love that about making fucking movies. That's my favorite fucking part. And every day that I fight, every day I pitch, every day I write an idea, it's just to get there. It's to get on set. It's to watch it happen. Because being somebody, and I know a lot of you guys do it, and a lot of you women have done the same thing. Like being somebody that is sitting on set and watching this idea, this stupid little idea you had, you wrote it down on a piece of paper, or maybe you heard this story and you're trying to recreate what you felt. And you sit there and you watch the monitor and you feel it. Like you look at it and you go, oh, right. Or if you look at the person sitting next to you and you see them feeling it and you go, Oh, good, it's working. And then it surprises you because it feels new. All of this outside experience, all this outside influence has suddenly made it into something that you're having a new experience with as the creator. That's what I love about filmmaking. That's what makes it so special. That's what makes it really expensive, but that's what makes it so fucking special. That's the difference between being someone that sits down and draws something on a piece of paper and someone that directs something. It's that influence. All those inner voices, all those fucking levels of experience. God damn it, I can't say it enough. I absolutely love that stuff. And I love making movies because of it. Almost more than I like watching movies. I'll be honest with you. I would say that it's pretty damn close. So I just wanted to take this moment today and talk to you about this. Explain to you why I love making films. Maybe give you a bit more insight into the type of movies I like to make and what my motivations as a storyteller are. 
And I challenge you that after you watch any film, right? You watch any movie, you sit down, you go through the hype, goes through the hype train and they're telling you this movie is going to be the most life-changing fucking thing in the world. And they're putting it through that hype train because they have to make all that money back that it costs to do that shit. So get as many people in the audience as you possibly can, right? So you're like, fuck, this is going to be amazing. You've bought in. And then you sit down with expectations and you watch this movie. Maybe you sit down without expectations and you watch this movie and you don't get it, <laughs> right? Why is this supposed to be really good? Why is everybody saying that this thing's fucking great? It just doesn't feel great to me. Why? Then you reach out, right? And you look for somebody. You go, hey, when you watch this movie, what did you, did you think it was good? Right? That's the first question. And that person may be like, nah, I thought it was a piece of shit. And you go, right, it was a piece of shit. Or they may go, no, I actually thought it was really great. Then it comes down to you at that point. What type of person are you there? Are you the type of individual that goes, no, 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 it sucked. Right? Or are you the type of person that goes, well, why, why was it good for you? What did you like about it? And then if you're lucky, that person that you're speaking to has sort of examined it. Maybe they respond with, I don't know, I just really liked it. That's great. There's nothing wrong with blissful fucking watching of a movie. Like, without examining something, I get that. But oftentimes, if you think about it, you talk about it, you go, well, you know, the cat, that, that one cat, that one actor, oh man, like there was something about the way that their, their body language in those flashback sequences, it reminded me of when I was younger and I used to help my dad clean the garage. That got me. That really fucking got me there. Well, what did you think of the whole story of the movie? Eh, whatever. The story was whatever. But that little moment got me there. Okay, but the story sucked though, right? Yeah, I didn't really like the story, but I liked that moment. So then the movie sucked. I, did it though? I mean, did it really suck? Because I felt something there in that moment, in that scene. Why is that not valuable? Why is the movie got to be fucking perfect? When did that happen? Right? Like, when is anything fucking perfect? When do you leave your house, walk out into a perfect fucking weather, like perfect scenario, get into your perfect fucking car, it starts right up when you want it to, and guess what? The radio turns on, and the, the perfect song is on the fucking radio. And then you drive that fucking car to get something to eat, and when you get there, the perfect meal is on the menu. And you look at it, salivate over it, and you know exactly how that steak's going to be cooked, and then it comes out, and it's the perfect fucking steak. That never fucking happens. So why do we put that stress on films? Don't you think that on our average day, when you leave the house, you may walk outside and go, fuck, I forgot to grab my bag and shit. I just stepped in dog shit. What the fuck? But then you look over and you go, huh, there's that hummingbird that I haven't seen. And that thing's fascinating. And how the fuck does that thing fly and weird? And look how the sun's backlighting that thing. That thing looks really fucking cool. Oh, hold on. My phone's fucking ringing. Oh, right. I'm sorry. I forgot to get that thing. Your day doesn't completely suck, right? <laughs> There's something that you're pulling from that moment, from that day. And so when I watch movies, I, I just understand that it takes so much to make a great film. It takes so much to get a movie fucking made for you to even see it. The goddamn miracles, the fucking lottery ticket scratching. That has to happen for it to even show up in front of you, for you to judge, you know? It's, I don't know, it's insanity. And there are two sides to this argument. There's two sides to this thought. Audiences shouldn't be examining stuff, shouldn't understand where it comes from. Audiences should just be mindless people that sit down and watch a film and go, Ugh, I'm feeling happy. Ugh, I'm feeling impressed. Oh, I'm scared right here. And they should just follow these rhythms that we designed for them in this thing to ultimately feed them more cheeseburgers, right? 
That's a thought process for it. But then there's the other thought process. You start reading essays from Martin Scorsese. You start going back and watching older cinema and reading about people that talk about older cinema and how it, it affected them. It's not about them being know-it-alls. It's not about them knowing more about films than you or knowing more about the technical aspects of films. It's about examining how you feel during those films and whether or not what you're feeling was the intent of the people making those films. And is what those people that you're watching that film with are feeling, are they feeling the same thing or is it different? You know, that's when watching movies becomes exciting. And I can tell you right now, any director that I've ever talked to on this show, any director that you'll ever meet is thinking that shit, right? Because in the beginning, when you get started in this business, you're like, I've got some, I want to tell some fucking crazy stories, man. And I want to show the world in a different light. I want to paint a world in a way that it just doesn't seem to be done in the medium that I'm playing with, right? You hear this all the time from new folks where it's like, I got these great fucking ideas. Then they go through the process of trying to put it through the system, put it through the machine. Well, honestly, we don't think the audiences are going to respond to that that way. So no, you should probably change it to something that they're comfortable with. And then you can guide them through that. And you're like, yeah, but that's sort of the antithesis of why I wanted to do this to begin with. Yeah, but we need to make sure that people want to go see it because it's going to cost a lot of money to make the fucking thing. So consider that. Right. Okay. Yep. All right. So then when you watch something, and let me be transparent here, okay? This is stemming from a post I did last night. So I did a post, a very innocent post on Instagram about uh, the new Justice League. So Zack Snyder's Justice League. Um, and the movie, if you guys haven't seen it yet, I'm not going to spoil anything. It's hard to spoil anything because it's already been released, essentially. But there's a bunch of new stuff in it. And there's a whole history behind the, the, the process of making this movie and uh, why Zach was on it initially, why Zach was off it initially, uh, how the studio released a different cut from a different director, how the fans were responding to Zach's work at the time. There was all sorts of stuff involved with it, right? But enough time has passed. I mean, the movie wouldn't exist if it wasn't for our curiosity, the fans' curiosity into what this director was actually gonna do and so we have the hype around the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League compounded with the fact that it is like one of the big releases for HBO Max and HBO Max is in a struggle process right now becoming a great streaming service which they're pretty good at um, and so that's a thing so we're as an audience you're sort of dealing with all this outside stuff right that's coming in and then you watch it. It's four hours. It's over four hours long, right? And now this movie was asked to be made, pushed to be made by fans of comic books, by fans of Zach's, but also fans of a specific type of comic book, very specific genre of DC books. And I'm talking about Jim Lee's stuff, right? I'm talking about kind of that hyper-stylized, jump-off-the-panels, illustrative vibe, which Zach is built for, right? Like everything he understands about cinema, all his toolbox skills, all of those language techniques that define his tone are perfect for this. I'd fucking hire him in a heartbeat for it if I was an exec because of that, right? So then I watched the movie, and I fucking dug it, man. Like, I really enjoyed the experience. It was four and a half, almost five hours long. Um, and I, I, I went through the whole thing in one sitting. Sure, I took a break halfway through. I was like, I got to eat something. So I'll take 20 minutes off and eat something. But happily came back and jumped back in. So I posted about it. Right? And I posted about it on Instagram. Now, let's talk for a second here about social media. It's flawed. It's a flawed fucking communication system, 100%. And we see this consistently all the time. 
And it's so funny to me that it surprises me, but it's just so fucking flawed because you have folks that are chiming in specifically to chime in, uh, to feel something. That's why I posted it. I wanted to feel something. I posted this thing about enjoying this, this, this film and talking about this film to get sort of like the same kind of reaction from folks. Like, yeah, right, it's great that something like this is being made. It's really cool that he had the opportunity to do this, right? That's fucking rad. That's it. And why did I do that? Because I want to feel good about doing that. I want to feel good about myself posting something like that, supporting an artist and feeling like I should support an artist. Does Zach need my support? No. <laughs> Is my support going to change his career? No. So why did I do it? Because it feels good, right? Why does anybody post anything? This is what I'm wearing today. Make me feel good. This is what I ate today. I'm cool, right? Make me feel fucking good. That's what this shit does. That's what it's here for. Now, some people feel good by making other people feel bad. And that's a big part of social media right now. It's a huge part of it. Some people feel good by making other people feel guilty. Some people feel good by knowing more than other fucking people. And the difference between social media and being in the room with those folks is that it's harder to do that when you have to look someone in the eye after saying something, right? So I'm not butthurt by any of the stuff that uh, fans were commenting on this post about. I'm not upset about it. I just, for a, heart, for a hot second, I just looked at it and went, right, this, it, it would be so fucking interesting. So what is the internal monologue of this person? And because there's this intense shield between me and them, I can't get a glimpse at their inner voice. I don't know who the fuck they are, right? Because of this shield because of the filtration, because of the ability to edit what you say, because of the ability to keep it impersonal, but at the same token, very personal. It's nuts. And being somebody that is so obsessed with body language, being somebody that's so obsessed with the inner voice and how people process that inner voice, Having this kind of shield, having this depth between me and that other person is scary, frustrating, and irritating. You know? And fascinating. There's a level of fascination that I have with it because now I'm curious. And I guarantee you, it's like I said in the post today, I guarantee you that if I was sitting in the room having this conversation over beers, it will probably get heated because I've had these before and people get very violently heated about the simplest things, right? When it comes to like comic book heroes and this is, when I read this comic book, this is how I objectively reacted to it. This is what I really responded to. I believe that his cape should be this color red because that is the first color that I ever saw on that person. I believe that the character should have this emotional reaction to that sequence because that's what I read it as. It's fascinating. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, there's something great about having an uh, audience, having a reader fall in love with your work. And a lot of times as artists, we leave it open-ended because we want you to associate your own life with it. You, we want you to connect to it because the better an audience connects to a character, the more they're in. So this is sort of like the side product of this. This is the, the after effects of this thing is when folks get adamant about shit and they get so upset and they write things like, that guy shouldn't have a fucking job or uh, that isn't what I... That's not fucking real DCU. That's not really what a character would do. Or uh, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Like angry, angry, angry stuff. In a thread that isn't angry. And my, my notion 
I think I, this is what I do wrong on social media is that I write the way I would act in real life. So my notion is like, whoa, buddy. Okay. Who invited this guy to the party? All right, buddy. So relax a minute, look around, see how your response is reacting with people. And then let me ask you this question. Why are you part of this conversation? Are you a part of this conversation because you're confused? Are you a part of this conversation because you can't understand why I like it? And would you like me to explain to you the things that I like about it? I'd like to hear the things that you don't like about it. I'd like that. But what I'd like to do is have a conversation in which I learn from you. Now, if you come in hot into a conversation and goes, it fucking sucks. And you go, okay, why? It just sucks. And you suck because you don't have the ability to understand that it sucks. What am I learning about you? You're one note the whole fucking time. One note. Right? That's the fucking internet. To the point where <laughs> people like to manipulate us on that because we know that that's what we do. And then you have to ask yourself, what is the motivation of that individual to get into this conversation? And what is my motivation to get into this conversation with that individual? Right? And oftentimes it's reactionary on both aspects where one person says something and the other person's like, what the fucking, what, what the fuck's wrong with you, dude? And then th that starts. Then let's go back to the 12 cam theory on the manipulation of our inner voices. If we know that this reaction, which I would use those techniques to en en like enlist a fucking feeling out of you when for a scene in a movie, if I know that those reactions will bring this emotion, then why would you make it so easy to be manipulated? Right? It's an interesting thought. I like it, man. I love, and I've always said this on the show, I love it when you guys interact with me on Instagram. I love it when you guys talk about stuff and I'll post things on there and you, I, I want to hear from you. I want to know why you think something's terrible. I want to know how you felt when you watched something. But I also want to think for a hot second that maybe you're there to learn something from me too. That's what a great conversation is about. That's why you get called to hang out. That's why someone says, hey, I'd like to go out and have a beer with you. That's why someone goes, you know, you don't have the skills, but I'd like you to be on this set with me. Why? Think about it. You know what I mean? I don't know. Whatever. Point is, I thought Zack Snyder's fucking Justice League was great. I thought it was a lot of fun. Is it 2001? No. But does it need to be? No. Nah. <laughs> there was a lot of things that when I watched that movie, I went, man, there's some really good stuff in here. This is great. Oh, man. Like, let me take a second and just celebrate it because I know a lot of you guys are like, Mike, why did you like it? Um... I talked a little bit about it on my post, but I love his casting. Zach's casting was straight on for this whole universe that he was doing. The casting of Aquaman, fucking great. Casting of Woman, Wonder Woman, everybody loves Wonder Woman. Zach was involved with that, right? Ben Affleck is fucking Batman. Who would have thought that he'd be so fucking great as Batman? I fucking dug him and his progression. And how his character went from being sort of dark and brooding and upset because all my family has died, Batman, to I'm going on faith, Batman. I thought that was kind of cool. And I like the way that Ben did it. I mean, A, he looked fucking cool as shit. He got really jacked for those sequences. But then I liked his close-ups. I liked the way he was thinking. And I generally like Zach's close-ups just for like side characters. And I know there's a lot of you that are very economical in your entertainment where you're like, just get to the fucking point. Can you just get through here? How about you take a hot second and look around? I feel like you're that individual that walks into Starbucks and pushes your way to the front of the fucking line and demands your coffee. And then you walk out of there. And if I walked over to you and I said, who are the other people that you were in line with? What they look like? You wouldn't fucking know. You know what I mean? So I find 
his close-ups fascinating. I find his side characters fascinating. In the extended version of the holdup with Wonder Woman, I forget the actor's name and I wish I had it unprepared, but the guy who was playing the head of the police in London, he's from Guy Ritchie movies. He was in fucking Snatch. He's got such a small little part in there, but he's perfectly cast for that little fucking part. It's great. It's really fucking cool. And I don't know the audacity that we have as a movie-going audience to be like, he doesn't know what he's doing. Dude, I'd have trouble fucking casting that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd have trouble doing that. The fact that he, as an artist, as a fucking storyteller, was able to go to one of the biggest studios in the country, on the planet, take how many different characters... They're prime money-making characters and say, I got a great idea. And to have that studio go, dude, you have car blanche. You can do whatever you want. That's earned, man. That's fucking earned. And that's what I like when I watch movies by filmmakers. Catherine Bigelow. I fucking love Catherine Bigelow. I don't talk about her enough on this show. Do you guys know who I'm talking about? Right? Amazing director. Point Break, Near Dark. Let's fast forward a little bit. Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, Detroit. Amazing director. Strong, powerful, intimidating. I would be completely intimidated by working with Catherine Bigelow because her, she is on par if not better, as far as track record is concerned, with Michael Mann right now. Think about that. Michael Mann's like top, top level for me. Catherine Bigelow fucking kills it. And the thing I love about Catherine Bigelow movies is it comes through her voice. Now, is this an educated voice? Yes. Is, did Catherine Bigelow do all her research and dig through her stuff on the events that happened in her movie Detroit? Uh-huh. And she felt a certain way when she went through and read all that stuff. I'm assuming that she felt a certain way. I'm not speaking for her. But I assume that she felt a certain way when she read those articles and when she heard the court trials and she heard all that stuff. And she was like, fuck. And that was her voice for the piece. And then she cast people and she had all these other folks working with her. And they all brought something to it and it became something special. I like that. That didn't come first from a room full of fucking people that are on a panel concerned about their investors and shareholders and the fucking fans, and they weren't making these decisions based upon all these other people because what happens is the movie is empty. It doesn't have a fucking voice. In my opinion, it doesn't have a voice. I don't know if it's dangerous for me to say that kind of stuff, but it's true. I love that. I mean, we, all filmmakers listening to this, I know feel the same fucking way. We hunt so long, we spend so much time just sort of examining ourselves, examining the people around us, trying to figure out how to define what we're feeling. This is why you go to people for advice, right? Call up your parents. I don't know what's going on with my body right now. My legs are sore. What happened with you? I'm trying to do my fucking taxes here and this doesn't make sense. And is there a way that I can do these write-offs the right way? This guy, he won't return my phone calls. I don't know. Maybe I was too upfront about what I wanted from him. Maybe I'm scared him away. What do you think? We as humans want personal voice. We want this. That's why I got into filmmaking that's why I love filmmaking. That's why I love certain directors because they have a fucking voice and it's refreshing. And so to bring this back to the new Justice League thing, I loved it because Zach's voice is in it 100%. And if this is a fantastic exercise in the results of the same movie without a filmmaker's voice and the movie with a filmmaker's voice. And what I posted online was that I was completely proud of all the fans that supported that filmmaker's voice. That's what I want from cinema. That's where I think cinema should go. And if we're not careful, 
that voice, that ability to have that voice will be taken from us. So that's all. So now you understand why I got a little irritated with it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, what does it matter, right? Because we're sitting here and we're arguing over apples and oranges. So what the fuck? What difference does it really make? That's just my perspective on it. I'd be curious to see what your guys' perspective is. Write to me. Let me know what you think about the, the new Justice League. Let me know what you think about social media. And, you know, if you got some really interesting stories about your social media exchanges, let me know. I'd be fascinated to see if, if you guys have figured out a way to make this communication thread a bit more personal, right? To understand sort of the truth behind each individual. Does that exist here? And can there or will there be something with this technology that will do that? Because right now, every interaction that I have with it with other people, I hate it. It's filtered. You know, Zoom calls, it fucking drives me crazy that I'm staring at my own face. At one point or another, I see my own face in there. And I know that each of those other people see their own fucking face too. And I can see it in their body language. Because every once in a while, they'll adjust themselves or they'll flip their hair or they'll move themselves slightly. They're not listening to what the fuck I'm saying. They're concerned about themselves. And what I love about real life fucking uh, conversations is that I don't know what I look like while I'm doing it. I'm so focused on the other person because at the end of the day, it's about what we create together in that moment. That's what fascinates me. I don't know. That is my rant for today, Friday. I hope it gives you a little bit more insight into how I make movies, into the, the type of stories I like to tell, into the type of people that I like to team up with. Uh, and I just want to thank all of you for just giving a shit, tuning in and listening to this guy, because what does my fucking opinion matter? It doesn't, right? At the end of the day, it doesn't. I'm not changing the world. I don't have a job that's that important. I barely am good at what my job is. <laughs> But I don't know what it is. I get off on sharing stuff with you guys. That's it. Makes me feel good. Selfishly doing this. So have a good day. Thanks for listening. Check us out at inlovewiththeprocess.com. Follow me on Instagram at Mike Petchy or the Instagram or the podcast Instagram at uh, In Love with the Process Pod. That's In Love with the Process P O D on Instagram. Uh, you can actually see the post that I was talking about on the show and uh, hope you guys uh, find a little bit of inspiration in all this stuff. And as always, I will see you next Tuesday. <laughs>